Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Luke and we're going to be in chapter number 16. And uh, I want to welcome you back to this series titled From Here to Eternity. Um, And as we mentioned last week, the reason why we are doing this series in the first place can be found in the subtitle, which is Living Beyond the Now. In fact, last week we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that our world and our culture encourages us not only to live for ourselves, but it encourages us to live for now. Okay, not simply just living in the moment, but living, you know, the bulk of our lives for right now. We make decisions, we make choices, um, and and we make make lots of things, uh, lots of choices that that all the time they're rooted in in what we desire right now, what we we want right now, what we we feel like we need to have right now. And most of our decisions are focused on the short term. Does this make me happy? Does this make me feel good? Does this particular activity scratch a particular itch that I have? Okay. Does this make me more attractive? Does this make me more popular? Does having this satisfy a desire within me? Most of us have this tendency to live for right now. But what we discovered... Okay, is satisfying our own personal desi- desires in, in the now is really way too small of a thing for us to live for. Because um, all that we do for now, all that we live for in the now is really irrelevant because guess what? It's not going to last. It, it will not last. We, um, the things that we do that we live for right now more than likely will end up fading away. And as, and as Christ followers, we have a whole lot more to live for than just the now. As Christians, we need to begin to to live beyond the now and start living for eternity. In fact, as we talked about last week, all right, this represents all of your life, all the way into eternity, okay? And this is your part of your life that you get to live here on earth, and this is the part of our life that we tend to focus on, okay? But the thing is that we talked about is what we do here in this part of our life here affects all of this part of our life, okay? And so what we have, what we do here has a rippling effect over here, okay? It, it, it ripples all the way out into our existence into eternity. The way we love people, the way we share the gospel with people here and now ripples all the way into eternity. And last week we spent a lot of time talking about this. And, and if you missed last week, then you need to go back and listen to the message. You can actually do it really, really simply. You can actually either go to our church website um, or you can go to our SoundCloud page and listen to the messages there, and uh, the and you don't have to write it down because the uh, the website addresses are in your bulletin. But either way, you can listen to the entire message and get all caught up, and and so you can actually move forward. And we want to encourage you to do that. And if you hear something in there that really resonates with you or speaks to you, then you can also share that message with your friends and your family. But um, with that, where we left off last week, you know, was a place where we came to the understanding that we need to begin to start living beyond the now, and we need to actually live for eternity. Okay, we need to make decisions, and in our, and we need to uh, align our lives in such a way that resonates beyond today, but into eternity. Or in other words, we need to invest our time, our energy, our finances, our resources, and our leadership abilities into the things that will last for ever, as Jesus says, you know, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth that are not going to last, okay? Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven that will last forever. We need to, to learn to live beyond the now. We need to learn to live for eternity, okay? And naturally, naturally, the big question that follows this then is, how? How do you do that? How do we live for eternity? Okay, And that's the, that's the big question that we began to ask last week. And then as I mentioned, we're going to actually spend the next several weeks answering this question over the next several weeks. And, 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 and we're going to talk about ways in which that you can live for eternity in your everyday lives. And we're going to make this really very practical. But before we get into all that, before we dive headlong into that, um, we need to take some time today and have a really serious conversation uh, because there's something that we need to get painfully clear about. 
So before we can begin to talk about how we live our lives for eternity, you know, at work or in our marriages or in our families and our relationships, and before we can talk about living for eternity in the way that we use our time and our talent and our stuff, and before we can talk about how we, we need to live for eternity, you know, uh, and, 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 and lay up for ourselves treasures and heavenly rewards, what we need to do first is we need to come face to face with perhaps the most important truth that there is about eternity. Okay, And let me just tell you, this is the truth that nobody wants to talk about. This is the truth that nobody wants to talk about. In fact, it's a truth that many churches and pastors will shy away from. It's a truth that our post-enlightenment and post-modern uh, culture scoffs at. It's, it's a truth that, that is questioned and mocked and, and, and ridiculed by those outside of the church and even many people that are inside the church. It's a truth that, 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 that embarrasses some people to, to admit that they believe in it. It's a truth that others feel uncomfortable talking about or even thinking about. And, and, and this truth, because of our emotional attachment to certain people, we just simply don't want to face it. Okay, And I'll be the first to admit, I'm going to be the first one to tell you that this is a hard truth. It is a painful truth. It's a truth that scares me. It's a truth that at times causes me sadness and great grief because it's an overwhelming truth. It's an all-encompassing truth. It's a truth that affects everyone. Everyone, everyone who's ever lived, everyone you have ever known, everyone who you have ever loved, everyone you even hated. It's a truth that, that affects every, everyone, regardless of their race and, and morality and, and nationality or their gender or their financial status, uh, regardless of their education level, regardless of how smart they are. This truth affects everyone. And the bottom line is that this truth for you is, is it's either the best possible news or it's the worst possible news. Either this truth, you know, is, is really, really good or it's going to be really, really bad. But either way, it affects everyone, regardless of how much we refuse to believe it, regardless of whether or not we want to accept it, regardless of whether or not a culture, what it says about it, the truth still affects everyone. And the truth is simply this. We are all going to live forever. The only question is simply where? That is the truth. We will all live for some, uh, live forever. Okay, we're all going to live a life beyond this life. The only question is where will that life be? We will spend that life either in the awesome presence of God or we will spend that life completely separated from God. We will live forever in the presence of Christ okay, or we will live forever separated from the life-giving presence of Christ okay, in an existence that is known as hell. That is the question. In fact, probably it's the most important question to ask. But today, in our culture, we don't even ask this question anymore. We don't like to talk about this question because there's something in our culture and there's something in us that wants to, to deny that this is even a choice. And it's not to say that we don't believe in heaven okay, or the resurrection or, or eternity with God because we believe that stuff. In fact, most people, you know, even non-Christians in America believe that there's a heaven. Okay, that's not the problem. The problem is we just don't want to believe there's such thing as a hell. We don't want to believe that there's a place that people will go to when they die in their sins and that offers them nothing but eternal, permanent, inescapable torment. We don't want to believe in a forever existence that is defined by punishment. We, we struggle with the idea of a loving God who would send anyone into a place where they would experience pain and agony and grief for eternity forward. Regardless of what they have done, we struggle to reconcile that. And so because of that, many people in our culture and many cultic groups that claim to be Christian and many people even in the church right now will simply refuse to believe the orthodox concept of hell. They simply refuse to believe that there's a place of eternal torment and pain. And understand, they don't refuse this, you know, they don't refuse to believe this because of what the Bible actually says. They refuse to believe it in large part based on their emotional sense of justice. They start with how they feel. 
They start with how they feel about the subject of hell, and then they try to bend the Bible and twist philosophical arguments around it in order to have alternative theories about hell, an alternative option. Okay? And they do so in large part based upon how they feel about the subject. They feel that it's just unfair for God to sentence someone for eternal punishment. They say things like, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, especially for those people that we think that are good, quote-unquote, people. I mean, we all know people that are not believers in Christ, and many of those people are some of the most, some of the nicest, most genuine, most compassionate people we know. And it's hard for us to think about and reconcile people like that spending eternity in torment. It's hard to visualize our neighbors spending eternity in pain. It is hard to visualize some of our family members spending eternity in torment. We don't want to think about grandma like that, okay? We don't want to think about our parents like that. We don't want to think about our cousins like that. We don't want to think about our own children suffering for eternity in hell. And what about our grandchildren? What about the nice lady up the street? What about those people who've never heard of the gospel? There is something in us that wants to push back against this idea. And there's something in us that repulses this. And many people We'll just simply reject the notion of hell because of what, not what, because of what the Bible says, but because of their emotions and the limits of their understanding on the subject. And this isn't new. Okay, I just want you to know this isn't a new thing. Okay, in fact, um, a very influential third-century scholar and theologian named Origen struggled with this same idea. He struggled with the concept of hell, and, and he had a tendency to believe that everybody would eventually be saved. Okay, he struggled. With this. And so the struggle with this idea of an eternal hell where people are punished forever and ever and ever, this is this struggle has been around since the early, early church. Okay? It's a very, very difficult doctrine to accept. But, but and because of that, there are several alternative theories that have emerged over the years, and, and, and some have become very popular, even so popular that some Christians will think that they are biblical. Uh, and in fact, let's just take a moment and let's talk about a couple of these that, that pop up. The first alternative hell theory is is uh, one we can call the temporary punishment theory. Okay, and and for me this sounds biblical because we instinctively understand sin must be dealt with. We all have a sense of justice that people need to be punished for their wrongdoings. Okay, and the idea is that after a person dies, they will die in their sin, that they will enter a place where they're going to be judged and they're going to be punished for their sin. And this punishment, like in our modern world, can be uh, can vary in severity and it can vary in 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 time. Time frame depending on the nature of a person's sin. Okay, like the greater a person's sin, the greater the punishment. The the lesser the person's sin, the lesser time they have to spend, you know, in punishment. And so the idea is that if a person dies, he goes to this intermediate punishing area. And once that punishment is over, either they go to heaven because they've been cleaned, or they cease to exist altogether. And, and the overarching idea of this is that the punishment is not permanent, but a very temporary thing. And there are a number of Christians who believe that. Because their minds, they feel like they still have dealt with sin, but then they are spared the agony of having to like emotionally deal with the permanency of hell. Now, this particular theory is closely related to the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Now, I'm not going to get into all that theology, but suffice it to say this is an alternative view of hell. Another view is the concept of annihilationism, Okay. Which simply means when you die in your sin, if you die without Christ, you just cease to exist. You don't exist anymore. Your spirit and your soul are annihilated. Okay, And when you die, that's it. Okay, You never feel any pain. You never experience any anguish. It's just over. You're not even aware that you're gone. Okay, and, and, and most who believe in annihilationism believe in the idea of heaven for those who are saved. They still want to believe the good stuff, okay? But they just don't want to believe that the lost are punished or tormented. They believe that punishment for, for, for the sinner is in fact just not existing anymore. That God, in, in a sense, puts them out of their misery for all eternity. And, 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 and so they will use Bible verses such as Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, and the reference in Revelation uh, to the second death as proof that hell isn't a permanent place of torment, but instead is a, is a final death where God just mercifully causes a sinner to simply cease to exist forever. And that is the position of Seventh-day Adventists. It's also the, the position of Jehovah's Witnesses. And this is a position that's become more popular in some Christian circles, especially those who struggle with reconciling a loving God, you know, 
with eternal punishment. And the final way that we, that, that we have, have tried to sidestep hell is what's called universalism. Okay. Universalism is simply this idea that everyone gets in at the end. It's this idea that, you know what, you know, God is so loving that everyone's going to make it, all right? Except maybe like really, 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 really bad people, you know? Uh, and that God in his love and mercy will give everybody another chance after they die and somehow God will purify them after they die. And whether, regardless if they ever believed in Jesus, regardless if they, they had a religion, regardless if they ever had, you know, a belief system, regardless of how they lived their life, except maybe Hitler, okay, will end up spending eternity with God. And, and this is kind of the position that Origen wanted to take. And this is a position that the Universalist Church takes. In fact, this is a position that the Mormon Church takes. In fact, most Mormons believe that everyone is saved in the end. It's just not everybody gets to go to the same level of heaven and become gods. Okay? In fact, they believe that everyone can hear the gospel and receive the gospel of Christ even after they die. That's why they baptize people for the dead, because they believe God's redeeming work continues even after death. The only rare exception are the people who were once in the Mormon church who now are away from Mormonism and been converted to some other faith. Those are the ones that actually get to go to hell. But universalism is being more and more accepted today in the church. In fact, a very famous pastor named Rob Bell he wrote a book called Love Wins, and essentially he makes the claim that God's love is so beautiful and so awesome and so amazing that eventually everybody will be won over by God's love and be saved. And he is very popular because of it. And he's very popular with millennials. And this teaching is becoming popular because nobody, nobody, nobody wants to believe in a hell where people, especially good people, are punished for eternity. But let me just explain something. As followers of Jesus Christ, and as people who put our trust in Jesus, the same Jesus who suffered and died to save us, okay, we are not to build our faith on what we feel. Let me be really clear about that. We're not to build our faith on what we feel. We're to build our faith on what the Word of God actually tells us. Okay? We're not to build our faith on our feelings or our emotions. We're to build our faith on what God actually says. The truth isn't simply what feels right. The truth is exactly what God says is right. Now I'm saying, I'm not saying that our emotions don't play part in our faith. Because it does. All right? The emotion of brokenness before God is a good thing. The emotion of conviction for your sin is a good thing. The emotion of, of joy in the presence of God is a wonderful part of your faith. Along with the emotion of love and peace and contentment. All of those emotions are good and wonderful. They're a huge part of our faith. But they are not the foundation of our faith. We cannot build our faith and our doctrines on what our heart tells us. Because even Jeremiah reveals to us. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart, because it is contaminated by sin, is deceitful above all things. Not some things, all things. Your heart lies. And it even lies to you. Your heart as another translation puts it, is desperately wicked. Okay? And we all kind of know this. We all kind of like understand this. We all know that we can lie to ourselves. We know that our emotions can mislead us into believing something that's false. We know that our hearts can take us in a wrong direction. I think we've all experienced that. Okay? We all have had heartaches. And we've had ruined relationships because of the way we felt was actually wrong because of the way our heart was leading us was wrong. Right? We have done things in our lives that we regret because our hearts have actually misled us. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to our faith. Our emotions can mislead us in our faith. For instance, I've heard people say that, you know, I believe that after you die, God gives you one more chance to confess Christ as Savior. Well, that's a nice thought, but... It's not anywhere in the Bible. 
It's not anywhere that God has revealed to us. I've heard other people say, well, the truth about God is, is, is not something any one group of people can have. It's like spread out over all the world's religions, and every religion has a part of the truth, and, you know, and, and it's just kind of like separating those truths out and putting them together. And, and again, I'm just going to tell you that is not what God says. It's not what the Bible says. In fact, Paul tells us you know, that those who embrace orthodoxy are the church, okay? the unified body of believers that hold the truth. And those who deny orthodox faith are, are the ones who do not have the truth. And I've also heard people say, well, you know, especially, especially when people have somebody that they really, really care about that's kind of gone sideways in, in their faith. And maybe they have embraced a false gospel. They'll say things, well, you know, it's really not important that a person believes a certain thing. It's just important that you love God. And there's lots of ways to love God. But again, we spent a long time talking about that a few weeks ago. The Bible clearly tells us it's not what you do that saves you. It is what you believe that saves you. And you must believe in the true Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to be saved. No matter how much you think you love God. The truth is our hearts can blind us to the truth of God. It can blind us to the truth of sin. It can blind us to the truth of eternity. Our emotions can give us a false sense of what is true. So our feelings and our emotions cannot be the foundation on which we build our faith and doctrine. The Word of God must absolutely be that foundation because God is the very reference point for what is true. We must look to Him for what is true. We must look to His revelation to understand truth. And God has revealed to us the truth in His Word. We must look to God's Word to find out what He actually has to say about what is true and what we must believe. And the Word of God has a lot to say, a lot to say about the subject of eternity. It has a lot to say about where we will spend eternity. And what's interesting is the Bible, particularly the parts where Jesus talks, has more to say about hell than it does heaven. In fact, when you read the Gospels, you will find that Jesus spoke volumes more about hell than he ever did about heaven. And I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a very clear, particular reason for that. I believe that God knew that this is going to be a subject that we were going to wrestle with. I believe that God knew that the, that the concept of hell would be a hard pill to swallow. Okay? And, and, I, and I believe that, he, that, that this would be something we would tend to dismiss. He knew that we would try to downplay it or deny it or just ignore it. God knew that our emotions would get in the way of the truth. And so Jesus and the Bible spend a lot more time talking about hell than it does heaven. In fact... I just want to take some time this morning and I just want to share with you just some of the things that Jesus says and what the Bible has to say about, uh, about hell. And what I want to begin with is a parable that Jesus told in the book of Luke. And we're going to pick that up in chapter 16 and we're going to begin in verse 19 where Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple in fine linen... And he feasted sumptuously every day. Okay, so this is a picture of a very, very, very rich guy. Okay, he's got the nicest of clothes. Okay, he eats the best of foods. In that time frame, that was somebody that basically was living in a lap of luxury. Okay, and so it says, continuing, uh, at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus. This is not the same Lazarus that he rose from the dead. This is a different character. Okay, and so at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. So he was sickly and he had sores all over his body, okay? Who desired to be fed with what fell off the rich man's table. He just wanted just the scraps and the crumbs that came off the rich man's table. Uh, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. No, let me stop right there. If anybody ever wants to say that Jesus was all flowery and told nice things, this is a pretty disgusting, you know, uh, uh, representation. Because you got to visualize, this guy is so poor, okay? And he's also physically incapacitated because he has to be laid at the gate, okay? And he's covered with sores, and they're just so bad, and he can't even do anything about it to where just do random dogs come up and start licking on his nasty, oozing sores, okay? This, is, this guy is desperately, desperately, desperately poor, while this other guy is desperately rich. Now the story continues and says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Okay? So right from the very beginning, Jesus points out okay, that when someone dies, there's one or two options. Okay? 
There are only two destinations. A place where a person is immediately in comfort or a place where a person is immediately in torment. Now you have to understand, this isn't the final judgment of all things yet. Okay? This is just right after a person dies. Okay? This is what happens immediately after death. You either go to where God's people are, where you're comforted, or you go to where you are tormented. It is that simple. And in verse 24 it says, And he, the rich man, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. Uh, to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And so here we go. We have the very classic understanding of hell, which is involving fire and flames. Now, I'm not saying that this is literal fire and flames, okay? Because that's really not the point. The point is that the rich man is in torment, okay? And his torment is so bad that it's best described as being burned alive. Now, one of the greatest fears that people have, besides public speaking, okay, one of the greatest fears that people have is to die by fire. People are terrified, terrified of the idea of being burned to death. Why? Because being burned is overwhelmingly painful. Just imagine the constant torment of constantly being burned over every inch of your body. It's a graphic representation of pain. In verse 25 it says, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Now, without trying to read too much into the theology of, of the rich and poor thing, because we could spend lots of time on that, I want you to focus on what he's essentially saying here, that there are two destinations. One, there is comfort, and the other was anguish and agony. Okay? And notice what he says in verse 26. He says, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So understand, once you die, you're not switching places. Once you die, you are where you are. You're not changing places. This is not a purgatory where you're going to spend some time being punished and then you get to move on. There's no switching places. Once you die, you are where you are. The only exception to this is that the resurrection. You see, there's going to come a time when all the dead will be raised and they will stand before God at the great white throne judgment, which is talked about in Revelation 20. And they will be judged. In fact, John tells us in, in um, Revelation 20, verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and, on, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in, in it. Death and Hades, or the grave, have given up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. You see, when a person dies before the final judgment, okay, he will either go to a place of comfort, which we call heaven, or a place of torment, which the Bible calls Hades. Okay, and a person's going to stay there until the end of the age when the great white throne judgment comes, which means you're in heaven in comfort and you will stay there, okay? And if you're in torment, the Bible says, which the Bible's calling Hades at this point, that you will stay there and you will be in torment every single moment and the final judgment comes. And those who are in the Lamb's book of life, the ones that are in comfort will spend eternity with God as it is described in Revelation 21 where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life will spend eternity in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. But those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire and they will reside there in agony forever and ever and ever. You will absolutely live forever. The question is, where? Now, there are going to be some people that say, well, I just... I don't think that's exactly what Jesus meant, right? I, I mean, I think that's a metaphor. I, I think Jesus is just talking to metaphors about something else. And you're right. Jesus is talking in metaphors here, okay? When he talks about flames, he's talking about metaphors, right? Those are certainly metaphors. But these metaphors describe a very grim reality, okay? That if you die in your sin without Christ, you will immediately go to a place of agony and pain and torment and you will wait there and then you will be judged and you will be cast into the lake of fire forever in torment, a place that is so bad that, it is, that even Hades and death itself end up there. And so you have to understand that Jesus employs, if he employs metaphorical language, the corresponding reality to this metaphor is very, very, very real. And so you have to understand that Jesus is telling us the clear truth. It is so real and so grim. There's lots of metaphors that actually get used to describe hell. In fact, it's referred to repeatedly as the unquenchable fire. Not to mention it's also called the fiery furnace. Okay? It's also called the eternal fire. And this eternal fire is so bad that it is prepared for the devil himself and his angels. It is a place of eternal torment for the devil himself. Okay? And they will spend, he will spend eternity in agony. Okay? It's also labeled as the outer darkness, a place of devoid of light, a place of complete solitude, a place of deafening silence. And if you think that the silence is good, understand there's a quiet room in Orfield Laboratories in Minnesota that is called the quietest place on earth. Okay? And, and when a person goes into that room, they have to sit down because within 30 minutes, the, 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 the silence is so uh, disorienting they can't even stand up anymore. And then within 45 minutes, most people start to hallucinate and actually become, get, come to a verge of a mental breakdown. The longest any person's ever been able to stay in this quiet room is 45 minutes. Okay. Now just imagine an eternity that is so painful that it's described as a fire and a furnace, but also described as an outer darkness where you experience sensory deprivation. It is no wonder that Jesus says that this, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That people will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Why? Why do people gnash their teeth? Well, they do so when they're in pain. Think about it. If you hurt yourself, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? You grit your teeth, right? All right? Have you ever experienced pain so bad that you cried and you gritted your teeth? All right? I think we all have. Now just imagine a pain like that over every single inch of your body internally and externally forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That's the reality of hell. That's exactly how the Bible and Jesus describe hell. Now I realize this is a graphic description of the reality of hell. And, and many people, because of this horrific image, simply just want to push back against this. They just want to dismiss that this is symbolism. And, and they want to say, this is not really what hell is. This is not really what Jesus is saying. It's actually not, it's not punishment at all. It's certainly not something that's going to last forever. But the problem with that is, this position is rooted in how they feel in their emotions. Not what the Word says. Because the language that Jesus uses about, about hell is very clear and specific. In fact, in Matthew 25, when he's speaking of the righteous and unrighteous, he says, And these, the unrighteous, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Understand this verse that Jesus uses here, he's clearly saying that there are two destinations, two different places to end up. One is eternal life, the other is eternal punishment. And notice he didn't say eternal death as opposed to eternal life. He said eternal punishment. And then the word that Jesus uses here in this text cannot be conveyed any other way. In fact, the word that he uses for punishment is this word right here. And it's called colossus. 
This word is called colossus. And what this word means specifically, it means chastisement. Beating. Okay? It means punishment. It means even deprivation. Okay? All of the ideas that we've talked about, what hell is described as in the Bible, is exactly what that word punishment means. And the idea of this word punishment has nothing to do with death or sleep or rest. Colossus means clearly punishment. And Jesus says that this punishment is eternal. In fact, in this phrase he says, and the unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment. And then he contrasts that by saying that the, 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 the righteous will go into eternal life. Now you have to understand that the word that Jesus used here for eternal is the exact same Greek word in both cases. When Jesus says eternal punishment, okay, he's linking that to eternal life. He's using the exact same Greek word. In fact, it's this word right here. It's, um, it's, it's, it, it's pronounced ionios. Ionios. And what ionios means is it means simply unending or eternal, or is in contrast to something that is brief and fleeting. It is forever. And when we, when, when he, we talk about eternal life, Ionios, most of us don't have any trouble believing in that. We, we, we believe that, right? right? We believe in a life that never ends. But for some reason, when it comes to eternal punishment, we want to change that in the way that means. But you can't have it both ways. If you're going to hold on to the hope of the idea of eternal life in Christ, then you must also embrace the truth of eternal punishment without Christ. Because you cannot have one without the other. There, there are clear, specific words that Jesus uses here. We cannot just simply allow our emotions to tell us that one, eternal life is actually about eternity, and then eternal punishment is simply not about eternity, despite of what the word actually is saying. We must embrace the truth for what it really is. For all mankind, for everyone, there are but two destinations beyond this life. And those are eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, or eternal punishment in the outer darkness, the lake of fire, however you want to call it, who are not in Christ Jesus. And it's as simple as that. And it is as clear as that. Now again, we're going to continue, because that's just who we are. We're just going to continue to push back against this idea, because eternal punishment and eternal torment seems so unfair to us. And we're going to tell ourselves, despite what the Bible says, that a loving God simply will not throw someone into hell for eternity. Because it just seems like overkill to us. It seems unreasonable to us. I mean, God, are you really going to consign someone to hell because they didn't confess Jesus? Are you really going to send someone to hell in eternal punishment because they didn't you know, simply believe in your son? You mean to tell me that you're going to put people in hell, you know, you know, sons and daughters of people and grandmas of people in hell even though that they're nice and even though we care about them and love them very much, you're going to put them in hell because they simply didn't accept Jesus in their life? Are you going to punish them forever and ever and ever because of that? Well, that's just not fair. That's wrong. That's unjust. How can a loving God says that he loved all people do something like that? How can you love someone and then throw them into hell? But the problem is in the thinking. You see, this line of thinking assumes that people go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. That rejecting Jesus is the reason why people go to hell. But that's not actually the truth. I mean, yes, if you don't put your trust in Jesus, you'll spend eternity in hell. But that's not why you go to hell. You see, people go to hell because of their sin. Let me say that again. In fact, if you're a note taker, you know, this is probably the one thing you want to write down. People go to hell because of their sin. It is your sin that sends you to hell. It is your sin that brings about punishment. People go to hell because of their sin, their rebellion against God. People go to hell because they are hopelessly broken sinners. They are lost sinners incapable of saving themselves. Okay? They go to hell because, th because that is what sinners deserve. Sinners deserve to go to hell. The wages of sin is death. What we deserve is permanent separation from God. And let me just be really, really clear about this. If you were to ask me, come to my office and say, what does Sherman Burkhead deserve? I'm going to tell you as clear as I possibly can based on what I know about me and based on what I've done in my life and based on what I know what I'm capable of, I without question will tell you I deserve to go to hell. 
I deserve to be punished forever for the things that I had done wrong. I deserve, you know, hell because of the way that I have rebelled and, and, and the way I've mocked God for so many years in my lifetime. A holy God that I have mocked. I unequivocally deserve eternal punishment in hell forever. Now you got to understand, my dad, my dad loves me, okay? And he thinks I'm a good person. And, and my wife thinks I'm a kind, compassionate, and loving man. And my kids, they think that I'm a good man. And I have friends that come to me and they'll say, you know what, Sherman, you're just a good man. And you know, compared to some people, that might be true. But the truth is, I'm still a broken sinner. And with what I deserve, because the actions in my own life is to be forever condemned and separated from the presence of God. I deserve that because of my sin. I deserve to be sent to hell. It is only by the unmerited grace of God in Christ that I am spared that eternity of torment. See, the problem is not that hell is real. Or that the eternity in hell is excessive. Our problem as human beings is we tend, because of our sinful nature, we tend to have a flawed perspective about a number of important things. Important things that, that we view from our limited vantage point, and we view those things with distorted lenses. And the first thing we get distorted is, is our view of God. So we tend in our humanness, in our sinful nature... We tend to downplay the holiness of, the, of God. We tend to, to try to make God like us. We forget that we are made in His image and not the other way around. We try to visualize God as one of us, and in the process we forget about His holiness and His righteousness. And that's really a big mistake because God is completely perfect. He is completely good. He is completely beautiful. God is holiness. In Him there is no deceit. There is no darkness. There is no dissension or ugliness. He is the very epitome of truth and righteousness. He is spotless. He is perfect. God is holy. In fact, the Bible says it over and over again. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. For I am the Lord your God. Concentrate yourselves, uh, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is completely and totally holy. And He expects His people to be holy as well. In fact, no one, no one, no one can stand in the presence of God if He's not holy. That's why Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence. That's why when, when God rescued the nation of Israel, okay, and, and they built this tabernacle so that God can come and be with His people, the, the priests had to be consecrated and they had to be ritually clean before they could move into the presence of God. In fact, the Bible has instance, instances recorded where people entered the presence of God in the wrong manner and it cost them their lives. In fact, in Leviticus, we read a story about the fate of the sons of, of Aaron the priest. He, uh, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Okay? These men, all right, they had a front row ticket to God's presence, okay? And they, they approached God the wrong way and it cost them their life. God's holiness demands complete awe and complete respect. God's holiness demands people approach Him with a clean and humble heart. God's awesomeness... His awesome presence is so glorious, it was terrifying to the nation of Israel. In fact, they refused to climb the Mount of Sinai to be with God because He invited them. And they said, no, 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 Moses, you go up there because we're, we're terrified. Because they knew that if they stood in the presence of God the wrong way, that they would die. You see, God is deserving of our very most awe, admiration, and respect. Because He is the creator of all things, which means He is timeless, eternal, and transcends all things, including space and time. God in His Word created the universe 93 billion light years across. God in His Word created all material things, both visible and invisible. God in His wisdom created all the fine-tuned, complex systems that are required for life. And is this same God that holds creation in His hands. It's this same God that is powerful and all-knowing and present everywhere in creation. It's this same God that out of His love created you. 
and created me. We live moment by moment because God has allowed for us to live so. And, and, the, and the same God... Okay? And this same God knows all there is to know about you. He knows what you think. He knows what you do. He knows what your dreams are. He knows your nightmares. He knows your heart. He knows your sin. This God is awesome, but he's also intimate. But we must understand this intimate and awesome God is the very essence of holiness. And, and, and God takes his holiness seriously. God is holy and he expects us to be holy as well. We're to be like him, not, not he like us. So we must never forget and lose sight of God's holiness. Because if we lose sight of his holiness, guess what we do? We lose our perspective on sin. You see, we as humans have this tendency to downplay the nature and the effects of sin. Okay, we, we look at a lot of sin and we think, well, that's just kind of overkill, right? It's not a big deal. We're okay with sin. We think sin is really isn't that bad, you know, because we don't keep God's holiness in view. So we have this tendency to where it's like, really, it's not such a big deal. But, you know, it's not to say that we don't think certain sins are bad. I mean, I think we all do, right? I mean, we all agree that murder is bad. I think we all agree that rape is bad. We all agree that torturing children is bad. I think we all can say that stealing is bad, but what about stealing from our company at work? It's just a couple of batteries. I mean, it's a couple of tools, right? It's just you know a couple of pens. It's not like I stole a car. It's not like I stole some money, right? I mean, I mean, flirting isn't bad, right? I mean, it's not like that we're that we've had sex, right? I mean, I mean, it's not like I'm cheating on my spouse. You know, you know, talking about that person behind their back isn't really bad. I mean, it's not like we're gossiping. I mean, we're, we're talking about how they need prayer, so we're just kind of talking behind their back. But it's not really bad, is it? You see, we have this tendency to diminish the seriousness of sin, especially the sins we don't think are a big deal. For many of us, pride is a minor sin. For many of us, gluttony is not a big deal. For many of us, our selfishness, you know, putting ourselves first in everything is something not to worry about. And, and, and for a growing number of Christians, sex outside of marriage is, is not a big deal. Okay? And follow, people who follow Jesus think that infidelity really isn't such a big sin. It's not a big deal, and neither is pornography. And, and we've reached a point in our culture that even homosexuality for a lot of people just isn't a big deal. I mean, there are a lot of churches who will just say, and a lot of pastors who say that, well, it's not much of a sin. And the reason for that is because we downplay sin. We downplay the holiness of God, and so we downplay sin. Let me just tell you the truth. All sin. All sin is rebellion against God. All sin, from the tiniest little white lie to the genocide of an entire nation, is all still an abomination before a holy God. Every sin, regardless of how small it is, is an assault on the very character and the nature of God. All sin is rebellion. All sin is rooted in some form of idolatry. All sin is some form of darkness. All sin is vile in the sight of God. And sin is a big deal to God. Every form of vanity, every form of pride, every form of lust, every form of greed, every form of hate, every form of selfishness, every form of self-righteousness, every form of idolatry is sin. And every form of sin is a big deal to God. In fact, James, the brother Jesus says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable of it all. Meaning the gravity of, 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 of sinning in the tiniest way Way is the same as murdering someone. Just because sin seems inconsequential in the tiniest way is, is for us is, is still the same as murdering someone else. Just because sin seems inconsequential to you who are not holy doesn't mean that it's not a big deal. It's still an abomination to God who is holy. All sin is rebellion against God. And God takes all sin seriously. That's why all sin is deserving of eternal punishment. It's a big deal. Okay? If sin were not such a big deal, and the consequences of sin were not so extreme, then why did Jesus have to die? You see, this is the hard truth. 
The moment you diminish the nature of sin, we end up diminishing Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The moment that you think that sin is not a big deal is the moment that you spit in the face of Jesus on the cross. Because if your sin is not a big deal, then why did Jesus have to die? Why did the Son of God, who was perfect in every way, have to be whipped and beaten within an inch of His life? Why did the Son of God have to carry the cross from miles to Golgotha? Why did Jesus have to be nailed to a cross and then hoisted up in the air where He hung there for hours, dehydrated and bleeding and slowly suffocating to death? If sin is not such a big deal and not deserving of eternal punishment and eternal separation from God, then why did Jesus, the very Son of God, have to endure God the Father turning His back on Him as He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If sin isn't deserving of such an overwhelming punishment, then why did Jesus have to suffer and die in such a horrific manner to save us from that sin? You see, it's precisely because of the punishment of sin and because it's so grievous and so heinous and so overwhelming that God has done something so radical and drastic like sacrificing His own Son to save us from that future hell. And understand, when I say... Understand, when, when you say, I don't think sinners deserve to be punished for eternity, what you're saying is that Christ on the cross really isn't a big deal. Because you cannot diminish the nature of sin and diminish the consequences of sin without diminishing the work of the cross. You cannot diminish the nature of sin and diminish the consequences of sin without diminishing the work of the cross. Christ suffered and died. So all who were hopeless in their sin and all who would turn to Him in faith would be saved. And not saved from eternal sleep and not saved from annihilation and not saved from purgatory and not saved from reincarnation and not saved from, from a temporary hell. He died so He could be saved from God's righteous wrath and His righteous judgment and His righteous sentence to where we would spend eternity in hell in torment. That is what Jesus died to save us from. And those who put their trust in Him alone will be spared that hell and will spend eternity in the presence of Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. And so to begin to answer this big question of how do we live for eternity, the first thing that you need to do to live for eternity is you need to embrace the truth about eternity. You need to embrace the truth about heaven and hell. You need to embrace the truth that we will all live for forever somewhere. The question is, is where? And the second thing is, if you've not already done so, then you need right now in this moment place your trust in Jesus Christ. You need to make Jesus Christ your Savior. And you can do that and have your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because if you've not trusted Jesus as your Savior, you are right now destined for hell. Do you understand that? I can't make it any more clear than that. You are right now, if you died without Jesus today, you are destined for eternal torment. That is your reward. And I'm not trying to scare you, I'm just trying to tell you the truth. So if you do not have Christ, eternal punishment is your destination. But if you will turn to Christ right now and confess Him as Lord and Savior, He is faithful to save you. In fact, if you're ready to do that, then it's all, in fact, let's just all bow our heads and pray right now. Let's just all take a moment. And if you are at that place where you're ready to receive Christ as your Savior, then, then pray this with me. And understand the prayer that we're going to pray, it's not magic words, they're not magic phrases. What it is, it should be a reflection of where your heart is. And if this is your heart, then you can receive Jesus right now. And you're just going to repeat, that, repeat after me right where you are. Heavenly Father, I realize I'm a broken sinner. I realize that my sin deserves to be punished. And I realize the fate that awaits me. And I understand that I can't fix it. I can't make myself good enough. But I know that you love me and you sent your son to die for me. And I believe that Jesus took my sin to the cross. And I believe that he paid the price for me. And I believe that when he died, my sinful nature died with him. And I believe that you rose him from the dead, proving that he is what he claimed to be. That he's God in the flesh. And that he can do what he promised he could do. And that's to save me from my sins. And so today, I confess Jesus as my Lord.
And today I confess that Jesus is my Savior. And I believe with all my heart that he rose from the dead. And I place all of my hope and my trust and my future in Jesus. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. And if you've prayed that prayer for the very first time in your life, then I want you to know you have entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more how to begin to live with Jesus, then I want you to take a moment and let me know. And you can actually do that by filling one of the information request cards in front of you, or you can talk to me after the service, or you can come by and see me during the week. But if you are already a believer, if you're someone who has professed Jesus Christ as your Savior before, okay, you can begin to live for eternity as well. And the way you do that is to get clear about the truth. Okay, And the truth is simply this. There are people in your life right now, there are people in your life right now, that if they died today, they would spend eternity in torment. You need to understand that. You need to embrace that. You need to take responsibility for that. There are people in your life right now, friends, co-workers, family members, people that you hang out with, people that are so nice to you, people that when you hang out with them, they just make you smile and laugh, people that you would identify as good people. If they don't have trust in Christ, if they've not moved to faith in Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, if they were to die before they make that move in faith... They will spend eternity in anguish and pain forever and ever and ever and ever. And embrace that truth. You take ownership of that truth. You need to put away any notion that sin is not a big deal. You need to put away every notion that hell isn't a real place of everlasting torment. You need, to, you need to take God and His Word and you need to understand that there are people in your life who will step off into eternity unprepared to spend eternity separated from God permanently, never, ever, ever being able to be redeemed, forever in agony. Friends, that is exactly why the gospel is so important. That is why Jesus' command to go and make disciples is so urgent. See, this isn't life and death. This is eternal life and eternal punishment. And as I said before, what we do in this little bitty part of our lives determines how we spend the rest of this. And how we love people here and how we minister to people here, and how we pour into their lives here, and how we continually share the gospel and plant the seeds over and over and over again will influence for them how they spend all of that. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to do something this week. I'm going to ask you to kind of press the envelope a little bit. Step out of your comfort zone. I want you to spend some time thinking about these people. Okay? And I'm going to ask you to spend some time thinking about how much they mean to you. And I want you to spend some time imagining them. As hard as this may be, I want you to imagine them spending eternity in torment. Okay? And then when you do that, I want you to ask yourself a question. Okay? And the question is simply this. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? And if you're not okay with that, what are you going to do about it? That's what I want you to think about this week. Let me pray for you. Lord God, the very real prospect of hell terrifies me. It scares me to death. It doesn't scare me because of where I'm going. Because I know... I know where I'm headed. I know where my, my wife is headed. And, but I don't know where some of my friends are. And it scares me because there are some people I really love and care about. And there's some people that I just really just, when I think about them, they just make me smile. And, 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 and I just think, gosh, what great, wonderful people they are. And, and you know, and I, there's just part of me that just wants to say, but God, you know what? If you're just God, you'll just save them anyway. But, that is, but I understand sin in a whole different direction. I mean, because I know who I am. And I know down deep, everybody's a sinner just like that, broken just like me. 
And so, Lord, I just pray that I never, ever, ever, ever get to the point where I'm okay with people slipping off in eternity without knowing you. That I'm not okay with people just, just dying and spending an eternity suffering, Lord. And understand that this suffering isn't just something because you're mean and cruel. It's just that is the nature of our sin. You're a holy God. I need to be careful not to try to make you into my image the way that I understand you. I need to accept what your word says. And your word says that you loved us so much that you killed your son so we could be saved. So we better take, take a hold of him. And so I pray, Lord God, that we'd all take this so very seriously. That we would get serious about reaching out and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. That we would not be ashamed. What are we ashamed of? That the embarrassment we're going to feel is temporary. But the torment they're going to feel is forever. Lord, quicken my heart for this. Help me to just step out of my comfort zone. Help me to be bold, not in your face and mean, but lovingly sharing the gospel to people that are in my life. I want what you want. You want everyone to come to know you and everybody to repent. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would use us collectively, Lord, as an instrument in your hand to save your people. That's what we want. More than anything else, Lord. More than, you know, more than big house and, and fancy cars. What we want more than anything else is for you to be glorified and for your people to receive salvation. That's what we want. And so I pray that you would just you would bend our hearts that way, that you would cause us to desire that with all of our might, Lord. And that we would be a people going out into this community, into the wider world, sharing the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ and, and preaching the good news that we don't have to go that way. That we can embrace the love of Jesus and be transformed and spend eternity with him forever. And so, Lord, I just pray that for all of us. I pray that you would meet all of our needs, Lord, and all of those who need you now, you know, that you would heal the sick and the brokenhearted. But most importantly, Lord, in everything that we say and do, we want you to be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.